Hello, and welcome to the Historical Society of the New York Courts podcast, where we discuss why legal history matters. I'm David Goodwin, a society trustee and a lawyer in New York City. For today's episode, which we're recording on April 16th, 2020, we will be talking about John Jay, a towering figure in American history, founding father, statesman, negotiator, governor of New York, first chief justice of the New York State Supreme Court, and first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court, and that's just the very beginning of his resume. John Jay was, to borrow a line from a certain musical about his Federalist Papers co-author, in every room where it happened. For New York legal historians, all roads lead through John Jay. But John Jay was a practicing New York lawyer first and foremost. Born into a prominent mercantile family, by the early 1770s, John Jay had built one of the most successful private law practices in New York. Jay's life as a public figure and the public acts for which he is known were indelibly colored by his life experiences in law practice and by his family background, one of the many reasons that Jay, as a founding father of both state and country, is so fascinating a historical subject. Here to discuss their perspectives on John Jay, and, in particular, how his career as a young lawyer guided his path as a public figure, are two illustrious authors whose pieces on Jay are featured in the current issue of Judicial Notice, the Historical Society's Journal of New York Legal History. First is Associate State Supreme Court Justice Mark C. Dillon. Justice Dillon has served on the Appellate Division, Second Department, since 2005. Justice Dillon's upcoming book on John Jay, entitled By the Light of His Burning Effigies, Chief Justice John Jay in the Struggle of a New Nation, will be published later this year by the State University of New York Press. Also with me is attorney Paul D. Reingold, the founder of and of counsel at Reingold, Jaffra, Rufo, and Plotkin, a law firm where he specializes in mass torts litigation. Mr. Reingold is the author of Litigating Mass Tort Cases, a treatise. Let's begin with the basics. What first captivated you both about John Jay, and what prompted your focus on him, as revealed by these two articles? Justice Dillon? Well, a couple of different things. I was born and raised in Yorktown, which isn't far from Katona. And Katona is where Jay lived as an adult in his later years. And I have a very vivid recollection of one very hot summer day. I was probably about nine years old at the time of going over there as a tourist with my uh, mother and my brother and my sister and standing in the house and seeing his office and his law books and hearing from the tour guide about various things that he did with his life and never imagining that later in my own life, I would have an interest in writing about him. And one thing that I've noticed about the literature on John Jay is that there's two types of literature for him. One is you have the general history books of the period where he's one of the characters that floats in and out. And then there's also the specific biographies of him that have been written from time to time over the last 200 plus years. But what I've noticed about those books is that they focus very strongly on the various political offices he held and the political things he accomplished and gloss over the years that he spent as the first chief judge of the United States. And one reason for that might be that the books out there are, for the most part, with some exceptions, written by people who are approaching it from the standpoint of a history PhD rather than as a lawyer or as a judge. So I think that there's a missing piece in the literature on Jay's life regarding his Supreme Court years and the very fascinating cases that he heard during the time that he was there. Thank you, Justice Dillon. And you, Mr. Reingold? I live in Rye, New York, and Jay grew up in Rye, New York, and his homestead is still here. In fact, it's a uh, county park. The house you see today is the house his son built, but it's on the exact spot that John Jay lived with his family growing up as a boy. 
And so I was always fascinated at what his life was like, because this was pre-revolutionary uh, New York. And the more so when I discovered that as famous as he is today, what was forgotten is that he was a trial lawyer here in Westchester and in the surrounding counties for about seven years before the Revolutionary War started in 1776. So I was fascinated to try to learn about what was his everyday law practice like and compare it to what it's like today. Let's turn to John Jay's career as a young attorney. He practiced in what would later become New York City, in Westchester and upstate, in both general and specialized courts. So what kind of cases were available to him as a lawyer in the 18th century? My own research is that back in that period, the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s, you didn't have lawyers who would um, concentrate in just one area of law the way we do today. People that do just real estate or just do medical malpractice or just do commercial. Basically, you took whatever would be credible that would walk in through the door and hopefully be able to make some money off of it. I was able to rank in order the types of cases he had. The most common was suits he brought on debt on a bond. Some debtor had put up a bond, and I guess they were slow in paying, so his job was to get into court and sue on that bond. The second most common was mortgage foreclosures. Third came a sumpset, and I know that all our listeners remember all these funny legal terms that we had years ago in law school, but a sumpset is a suit on an oral contract, and that evidently was common too, but obviously harder to prove than a written contract. Next came trespass and ejectment. And these were really title suits. So two people were claiming who owned land. So you would sue them for trespass. And if you won on trespass, then you establish that your client really owned the land. Next came a couple of intentional torts you don't see much of today, but were very common then, assault and battery, and what they called slander. Although now we would call that uh, libel and slander. And lower down came Trover. That's with personal property, a claim for ownership. You would be trying to establish who had the ownership of some item of personal property. But that pretty sums up uh, the types of cases he had in his seven years of litigation. So was that kind of caseload typical for someone practicing in that era? And were the kinds of cases he took influenced by his somewhat aristocratic background? Most of these cases were typical in the sense that very often he was appearing for the defendant. So obviously, someone else was bringing these suits. When he was a plaintiff, he was being hired by these wealthy uh, families, Schuylers and the Livingstons, these other people, to sue on existing debts. He was actually only one of 35 lawyers entitled to practice in New York State at this time before the higher courts, the Supreme Courts in the various counties that existed at that time. One observation that I would add about John Jay is that the matters that Paul was just describing, like assaults and batteries and slanders and disputes over property, are very pedestrian-type disputes. And here John Jay was a member of a very aristocratic family. He was born into wealth. He married wealth. Uh, he was educated at the time when most people did not have his level of education. And yet he devoted years of his life to practicing these very pedestrian type of cases on behalf of clients. So he was a man of the people in that sense. I actually spoke with a former New York Court of Appeals judge, Albert Rosenblatt, a while ago about one of his projects, preserving historical records. So naturally, I'm curious, what kinds of historical sources are available that tell us about his law practice? I imagine that record-keeping at the time was not particularly thorough. I think the first thing I have to remember is 
you didn't go to a computer or a typewriter and do a complaint. It was all handwritten. And you had to make multiple copies so that clerks were employed in these lawyers' offices. The first two years of their five-year apprenticeship or clerkship was just copying. And Jay himself had been in that position earlier and chafed a lot at the waste of time he spent. If you were going to serve a complaint or demand for a jury, you'd have to, in your own handwriting, create it. And then your clerk would create another copy to be served on the opposing party uh, to be filed somehow in the courthouse, whatever they had. But they had no uh, written forms, even for an appeal. Everything was handwritten and and then copied. And uh, in that respect, we've certainly come a long way since then. And the first thing any scholar Jay encounters is that his legal papers disappeared during the revolution. And it's suspected that all his files were uh, burned up when the uh, British invaded Manhattan in 1776 and the people retreated to Westchester White Plains. But fortunately, what has happened is that the lawyers he was up against, including a guy named Kemp, his record survived. And Kemp and Jay litigated against each other, sometimes to the plane of some times for the defendant. So we can find all Jay's papers, which ended up in Kemp's files. And then in addition, there was a discovery of these 300 cases that were in two notebooks preserved up in Albany, fortunately, where he would enter each new case he was brought into on a separate page. Of course, all this in old handwriting. And then he would give the name of the case and what the subject matter. And then he'd give other interesting information I might discuss later, like how much he charged the client and how much it cost to file a suit or whatever it might be. These were John Jay's own notebooks, right? Not just material preserved by his adversaries. No, the notebooks are two notebooks, which, by the way, in my article, you'll see how to access and read online. Uh, They were all copied page for page by Columbia University, which is the main keeper of the J papers, although most of the J papers relate to events after the Revolutionary War. But these books are fascinating because, as I said, each page is in his handwriting and he gives the caption of the suit that he was either commenced or brought in. He tells who his opposing counsel was. He lists the events that took place primarily uh, to justify the work that he was charging where he was billing so many pounds, shillings, and pence for things he did. But he also keeps a very interesting column of um, the cost. It costs then as a cost now to file a complaint, uh, file a motion, demand a jury, Uh, All those were certain sums that had to be paid into the court in order to do it. And what I found most interesting was in his debt collection cases, let's say he was suing for 100 pounds, there would be a slow payment. The defendant agreed he had to pay. So he'd pay 10 pounds one month, and a few months later he'd pay 20 pounds. And when the entire debt had been collected, Jay would um, total it up, pay it to his client, and then have his client sign the book that on this date, I have received a hundred pounds back uh, that I paid, uh, that we sued for. And sometimes I was kind of marvel of this. It was a contingent fee type of relationship because if it was a hundred pound uh, debt, the, uh, the creditor who is suing would get 90 pounds and Jay would keep 10 pounds as this fee for collecting the debt. 
Jay was admitted to the bar in 1768, and within a decade, he was drafting the Constitution of 1777, that would be New York's Constitution of 1777, and was elected to be Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court. Treaties, cabinet positions, the Federalist Papers, and the position of the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court were to follow. How was Jay's role as a public servant, and especially as a justice and statesman, influenced by his time as a practicing attorney. The fact that he was a public servant is something that guided a lot of what he did in his life. And he always stepped up when he was asked to fulfill one role or another, either in the judiciary or in the other branches of government. But as a judge in particular, I I think that all of us would probably agree that if you're going to become a judge later in life, being a practicing attorney, and particularly a trial attorney, as Jay was, is very good experience for someone to have. Because then you can just slide into the role of a judge. You've been on the other side of the bench. You know the rules of evidence. You know what's going on with examinations and cross-examinations. You know the jury selection and, and how to handle jurors and instruct juries. And you know the procedures. So Jay's first role as a judge was not on the U.S. Supreme Court. As you had mentioned, David, he was chief judge of New York. He was the first chief judge. His first sitting as a judge of what was then known as the Supreme Court of Judicature was in Kingston in Ulster County on September 9th of 1777. And in that role, he heard a variety of matters, both criminal and civil. And he had to travel around the state of New York in order to hear cases in various venues. But he had the experience of being able to know what was going on in the courtroom, to be involved in jury selection, to know what was going on with direct and cross-examinations, to know the rules of evidence, to know how to instruct jurors in law. And that no doubt served him very well in all of his judicial roles. Uh, He served less than a year as chief judge before other things beckoned for him to take care of. Paul had mentioned that there weren't a lot of lawyers back in those days, and it was very unusual for there ever to be even a law partnership between two people. And if you did have a law firm, usually you'd never find more than two people involved in a practice together. John Jay did have a law partner at the very outset of his career, a gentleman that he had gone to uh, college with named Robert Livingston, who was himself part of an aristocratic family. But once he was in the trenches as an attorney and then as a judge, uh, he was hearing as a judge the same type of cases that uh, he had been handling for real people, real disputes as an attorney. Based on the discussion from earlier, it seems like debt collection was an evergreen topic in both Jay's life and in his law practice. Did that focus influence at all his jurisprudence on the Supreme Court? I think it did affect his jurisprudence while he was on the Supreme Court. There are various things that happened in in Jay's life that touch upon the issue of debt collection, which was such an important legal issue uh, in those days in our country. When Jay was a boy, for instance, if we go back even that far, his father was a merchant who retired fairly young. And when he retired, he was owed by various debtors uh, what we believe today to be worth about $1.1 million dollars. And the father spent three or so years collecting on most of that debt. It was able to collect on on most of that debt. Jay, as a boy, was able to observe the debt collection efforts of his his father. Uh, And then in private practice, as Paul spoke about, debt collection was uh, a major subject area for uh, cases that Jay would handle as an attorney. And then later in life, 
after Jay had uh, stepped away from his law practice in New York, uh, he found himself negotiating the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Revolutionary War between the United States and Britain. Uh, that treaty was concluded in 1783. And one of the provisions that he negotiated in the Treaty of Paris was Article 4, which provided that each side in the treaty would respect the legitimate debts of the nationals of the other country. Uh, the reason being that on both sides of the Atlantic, persons who sought to collect the debts that were owed to them by, by the other parties, the other countries' nationals, were being prejudiced in various ways by the debt collection mechanisms in the courts. So they put into this treaty a provision saying that each country would honor the, the debts of others. What made that very tricky was that when the Treaty of Paris was negotiated in 1783, the United States was being governed by the Articles of Confederation. And under the Articles of Confederation, the, the Continental Congress, Second Continental Congress, which had sent Jay to negotiate this treaty with uh, John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, really didn't have the authority to be binding any state on what state laws would be on debt collection or what state court procedures would be in debt collection cases. So there were a number of states, and I'll use Georgia as an example, which had enacted prior to the Treaty of Paris uh, what were called sequestration laws. Uh, the British were not popular in the United States at that time. You can understand why. We just had a war with them. And states had on their books laws which provided that if there was a British creditor seeking to recover money from an American debtor in the state court, that if that money was owed, it wouldn't be paid to the British creditor, it would be paid to the state. And the state would confiscate the money if it was a non-merchant creditor. If it was a merchant creditor, they would do what they called sequestration, simply hold the money for it to be returned to the British merchant at some future date. Of course, the states were all nearly bankrupt and they, they spent the money and then there was really no expectation that there would ever be a day when that money would be paid over by the state to those, those British merchants. So by the time the United States Constitution was ratified in 1789, uh, there was this provision that provided for the supremacy of federal law over the states and that the treaties that we entered into would be supreme law of the land. And, and so now all of these uh, various state sequestration laws were called into question, whether they were nullified by uh, the Treaty of Paris that Jay negotiated. So a lot of debt collection cases came into the federal court. During Jay's time as chief judge, he heard a total of, of 11 cases. It might not sound like a lot. A lot of cases had to work their way up the new court system, but he heard 11 cases from 1789 to 1795. And of those, the largest single category of them were debt collection. During his tenure as Chief Justice, the Supreme Court actually held a jury trial. The Brailsford case stands alone as the only reported Supreme Court jury trial in our nation's history. What was Brailsford about, and how was John Jay involved in it? Brailsford involves this Georgia sequestration law, and uh, Brailsford was the uh, British creditor, and he wanted to collect money from. Spaulding, who was the debtor, 
and the Treaty of Paris, as, as we know, was 1783. Georgia's sequestration law was passed in 1782, and Georgia maintained that it was entitled to intervene in the case, collect any money that was owed, and that its law uh, was controlling because it went into effect before the Treaty of Paris went into effect. The case worked its way up to the United States Supreme Court and is peculiar because it was uh, the, the only reported jury trial case that was held at the United States Supreme Court. Just to clarify, what do you mean by the only reported Supreme Court trial as opposed to the only Supreme Court trial? We're accustomed today to there being official reporters that you can, you can read that contain the decisions that are rendered by, by various courts, state and federal. And a lot of that is now transferred, of, of course, or on, onto uh, the internet. But back in Jay's time, uh, you didn't have official rep- uh, reporter companies like West Thompson West that would provide uh, that material. You had an individual named Alexander Dallas, who was the court reporter, and he would record proceedings that were conducted at the United States Supreme Court. He would assemble for each year um, his materials of those proceedings, and he would self-publish them, and he would make his money by anyone that would be buying those books from him. And he was a capable reporter. He also happened to have been a lawyer, but he didn't always record everything that the Supreme Court was up to. There might have been times perhaps when he wasn't around. So there is reason to believe that there was at least one other jury trial that was conducted at the United States Supreme Court while John Jay was there, but, but the, the records of them really aren't anything that we can, we can access. Uh, but the Brailsford case is the one jury trial which we know was conducted and where there is a detailed reporting of those proceedings. So Brailsford involved uh, this uh, British creditor seeking to recover monies from an American debtor. You had diversity of citizenship between the two parties. And the amount in controversy was 7,005 pounds, which was worth in today's dollars somewhere in the area of $1.3 million. So there there was enough money here to make it worthwhile for parties to litigate up to the uh, United States Supreme Court. Um, the state of Georgia sought to intervene in the case because it wanted to collect through its sequestration law any monies that might be payable by the debtor to the creditor. And, and John Jay presided over the case since he was chief judge. Uh, he was part of the panel along with the other five justices of the of the Supreme Court at the time, but he was the one that was in charge. And this is another example of where his experience as a lawyer and as a, as a jurist in his earlier life uh, came in handy, because he knew just how to, to conduct the trial in the courtroom. They had a, a, a jury called a special jury. It wasn't randomly selected jurors, but it was jurors that all had... Um, some experience as merchants because the debt that was issued in the Brailsford case was a mercantile debt. Uh, They wanted to have jurors that knew the subject matter of mercantile debt better than a typical juror might have been. Um, The listener might also be interested in knowing that back in those days to be a juror, you had to be male, you had to be white, 
and you had to own a, a certain amount of property in order to be qualified on the jury rolls. So the original jury pool for this case was 48 people. It was whittled down through voir dire to 24 and then ultimately to, to 12. And another unusual aspect about the law back in that time, which pops up in this Brailsford case, is how the roles were defined between judges and juries. Today, we know very clearly that jurors decide questions of fact, that judges decide questions of law, and that judges instruct juries about what the law is that they must apply to the facts. That's all very simple. But back in Jay's times, the dividing line between judges and juries was a lot more murky. So that judges would instruct juries about the law, but the juries were never under any obligation to actually follow that law if they felt that they wanted to render some other decision that would be contrary to what the law would suggest. So here, the issue for the jury was more in the nature of a legal question of whether under the U.S. Constitution of 1789 and its supremacy law language, did the Treaty of Paris, which Jay, by coincidence, happened to help write and negotiate, have supremacy over the prior existing Georgia sequestration law from 1782. After all of the evidence was in, John Jay did in fact give us an instruction to the jury and he referred to the law as being a good old rule, quote unquote, that uh, judges can instruct them on the law, but that they would be free to render whatever decision they wanted to render in the end. The court did instruct the jury about the meaning of the supremacy clause and the arguments of both sides. He marshaled the evidence that each side presented, uh, but he made very clear that the jury could still disregard his legal instructions in reaching whatever decision they wanted to reach. The jury deliberated for some time, according to Alexander Dallas. That's an exact quote, some time. And they came back, as juries sometimes do, with a question for John Jay. And one of the two questions that they asked of him was really the penultimate question of the case. And it was, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was, well, if we find that the law controls here, must we not therefore rule in favor of the creditor under the supremacy clause of the Constitution? And when Jay gave an answer to that, that that's what the law would say, uh, according to Alexander Dallas, the jurors didn't even retire to another room to continue further deliberations. They just put their head together in the courtroom and in a matter of a minute or two, uh, they just uh, rendered their verdict and they held in favor of, uh, of the creditor right to collect on this debt under the supremacy clause of the Constitution. It, it invalidated the, the Georgia law. Now, privately, John Jay must have been very pleased with that. Was, uh, for obvious reasons, he would have wanted a decision that would support the, the text of the treaty that he and Adams and Franklin had earlier negotiated with the British. And there's never been another reported Supreme Court trial ever since? Uh, not one that's been recorded, no. As the Chief Justice for the United States Supreme Court, Jay was one of many. And like the others, he rode circuit, which meant travel, which meant getting on a horse and riding around the country. What was riding circuit like for John Jay? And what kind of cases did he hear when he was riding circuit? 
when I had mentioned that John Jay only heard 11 cases while he was at the United States Supreme Court over a six-year period, and he wasn't even in the United States for, uh, for that last year. He had been sent back to Europe to negotiate this, the famous Jay Treaty. Uh, I didn't I didn't want to suggest that, uh, that he had a cushy job and didn't work very hard because uh, Supreme Court judges in those days, uh, they had to be uh, at the Supreme Court for a February term and an August term each year. But the rest of the year, they rode the circuits and literally rode circuits uh, on horses and carriage uh, around the country. There were no circuit court judges in those days. The circuit courts existed but the jurists that occupied the circuit courts were drawn from Supreme Court judges riding the circuits and from the district court judges in the state where the circuit appeal would be heard. Uh, that was a little bit of an anomaly because the states only had one district court judge at that time in each state. So if then there was an appeal to the circuit that would cover that state, the judge rendering the decision at the district level would be part of the appellate panel on the circuit court reviewing that same case. Uh, the same thing was true with any cases that Supreme Court judges would hear as circuit court judges, which would later go up to the Supreme Court. They would be reviewing their own work as circuit court judges. But the travel around the country was grueling, and it was one of the things that Jay and all of the judges detested about the job. Jay, in fact, had to, during one year, ride the Southern Circuit, which included you know, the states uh, uh, from Virginia on down. And geographically, the amount of miles that that involved uh, was, was tremendous. Hotels were not the clean, wonderful Marriott's that they are today. Uh, hotels back in those days, you often had to share beds with total strangers and have multiple people in a room. And um, for food purposes, the, the restaurants were, were not very good. And the judges, as they traveled around the country for the Supreme Court, had to pay their travel and food expenses out of their own pockets. They didn't have any stipend from the federal government, nor was there any extra salary that they received that was intended to be used to, to cover these expenses. One of the reasons that Jay didn't return to the Supreme Court, you know, after, after he left the Supreme Court, when John Adams was going out of office and appointed a lot of what were called midnight judges, John Jay was offered the opportunity to resume his duty as chief judge once again, and he turned it down. And the reason that he pointed to, and I believe it was honest at the time, was that he just wasn't interested anymore of spending most of his year on a horse. We've spoken a little bit about the rigors of travel for Jay the Supreme Court Justice, but travel was a significant component, a challenge, of 18th century law practice entirely. Mr. Rheingold, what about travel as a practicing attorney? If you lived in Rye, New York, and you had a matter coming up in New York Supreme Court or Queens, uh, let alone Albany, you had to get there for the uh, hearing or motion, jury selection, and I can only picture him. It's 25 miles from um, his home to um, where the courthouse was in uh, Manhattan. He'd have to go a day early, take his horse, or maybe they had uh, carriages that he could ride, and then find a place to stay, like Judge Dillon said, overnight, a place to eat, and then uh, appear in court, perhaps for a matter that might take five or 10 minutes. And, uh, furthermore, uh, 
just imagine if he had a matter up in Albany because he had quite a few suits up in Albany, uh, especially because of these uh, patroons who had these debts up there. It's it several days ride to get up there and um, then he'd have to find a place to stay. So he didn't uh, ha anywhere complain of the hardships, uh, but it obviously was. Just to put another pitch in for Rye, if the um, post office is open again sometime in Rye, uh, listeners may want to stop in because there's a beautiful mural in the Rye post office that shows John Jay jumping on his horse, leaving his homestead in Rye. But it's a mature John Jay, so he must have been going out to do the circuit riding that Judge Dillon is talking about. I was, I was just going to add, I imagine, Paul, that when you had to uh, travel to Manhattan or to Albany or to wherever, you, you had to do it if it was biting cold in the winter or if it was sweltering hot in the summer or if it was raining. Right. And if, over muddy roads. I mean, now we have a, the, we had the throughway. Then uh, there are a lot of other books you can read that told about they were turnpikes and uh, rocky roads. And if you were in a carriage, it might tip over. So. <laughs> quite a difference today. And I think with that, we're about out of time. Justice Dillon, Mr. Rheingold, thank you so much for taking the time to share your research on John Jay. And as I mentioned at the top of the program, both of our guests have articles on Jay in the current issue of Judicial Notice, the Journal of the Historical Society of the New York Courts. Founded in 2002 by then-Chief Judge Judith S. K., the Society is a 501c3 charitable organization whose mission is to preserve, protect, and promote the legal history of New York State, including the proud heritage of its courts and the development of the rule of law. Before we bring this to a close, if you'd like to learn more about the Historical Society of the New York Courts and what it is we do, please visit our website at history.nycourts.gov and consider joining or making a donation. Until next time, I'm David L. Goodwin, and I hope everyone is staying safe and secure in these challenging times.